Okay, so as that introduction music fades out, I will fade in. And today, on today's podcast lecture, I am not going to be doing a review. And that is for two reasons. I'll tell you those two reasons. Reason number one. At this point, I have talked about all the stuff that is in the previous lectures quite a few times. And my guess is at this point, you know that stuff. And if you don't know it by now, you're probably not going to know it. So that's my first reason. The second reason is that we're starting something new here, a new unit, kind of. Uh, All of the podcast lectures before this one, all the previous lectures, they make up what I think of as one discrete unit, the first unit, the foundational unit of this class. In that foundational unit, I covered the concepts, the topics, the ideas that I think you needed to hear first in order to kind of, I guess, uh, appreciate some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast lecture and the podcast lectures that are going to come after it. So today's podcast lecture is going to be the first podcast lecture in what I think of as unit two of the class. Unit number one was foundational ideas. Unit number two is where we get into some of the different kinds of offshoots of psychoanalysis, some of the different kinds of ways that different thinkers, different individuals have taken the kind of like base of psychoanalysis that was created by Freud and built on top of that base. And in building on top of it made some new, sometimes very interesting sets of theoretical ideas, techniques, practices, those sorts of things. The theory that I'm going to be talking about in this specific lecture that you're listening to right now is the theory of ego psychology. After this lecture, some of the other theories that I'll be doing podcast lectures about will be self-psychology, which was created by a guy named Heinz Kohut here in the Chicagoland area. And after that, we're going to talk about attachment theory. We're going to talk about the work of John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, and Mary Main. Uh, we are also going to be talking about object relations theory. There's a lot of big people in object relations theory. We're going to be talking about Melanie Klein, Donald Winnicott, Ronald Fairburn, Wilford Bion, maybe a few others as well. And uh, we're also going to talk about something called intersubjective or relational theory. Uh, but today, today we're going to be talking about ego psychology. That will be our main thing. And there's plenty of stuff to cover here. Lots of interesting stuff in ego psychology. So what I'm going to do now is a little bit of transition music. And when we come back, what we'll do is we'll start to talk about ego psychology and kind of the historical context. The I want to give you a sense of what was going on kind of, I guess, historically in the world, in different societies when ego psychology was created. So the goal of this segment of the podcast lecture is to try to describe to you the kind of cultural milieu that surrounds the formation of this theory called ego psychology. And in addition to that, to try to demonstrate what it is that makes the theory of ego psychology really different from it's kind of like root theory, which is Freudian psychoanalysis. So to do that, let's start off with talking a little bit about the time and the place, the kind of cultural context that Freud was in when he developed the theory of psychoanalysis that ego psychology grew out of. So Freud develops the theory of psychoanalysis in Europe, mainly during the Victorian era. And that was an era which I think we could very safely call rigid. I think we could even call it somewhat oppressive in the way that that it operated. There were these extremely rigid, really oppressive kind of social structures. And they were very normal in Freud's day and age. So let's talk a little bit about what some of that rigidity and what some of that like kind of oppressiveness looked like. I'm going to give you three things to think about that were really commonplace at that time. The first thing is that women were systematically excluded from institutions 
from having kind of institutional power. You didn't see women professors. You didn't see women as elected officials in governments. You didn't see women owning corporations, that sort of thing. That did not happen in Freud's day and age. So in addition to not being able to have any kind of institutional power, women were also excluded from meaningful forms of social or economic power kind of writ large. That was something that was very, very normal in Freud's day and age when he created psychoanalysis. The second thing is that there was a almost complete and total uh, taboo around discussing sexuality, right? That was something that was not spoken about. And now, of course, people in that day and age, the same way as we are today, they were sexual beings. They were human beings. They had bodies. Uh, their bodies were had sexual desires, and people acted out those sexual desires. But they didn't talk about it. The idea of speaking about your sexuality was just not done. Now, one of the effects, I think, of that kind of taboo of, of speaking about sexuality led to a sort of um, cultural uh, repression of any form of non-heteronormative sexuality, right? That was something that was not really accepted, certainly not spoken about, but sexuality kind of generally wasn't spoken about. Be that as it may, even though sexuality was kind of this taboo thing, non-normative sexuality, non-heterosexuality, uh, that stuff was like ultra, ultra taboo during Freud's time. The third thing that I'm going to bring up is that, you know, again, this is taking place in Europe. And at the time that Freud is developing psychoanalysis, anti-Semitism and other forms of legally and socially sanctioned racism are really normal, right? You didn't, it, it would have been, I think, pretty much impossible for there to be a person of color, for example, marrying somebody who was a white European in Freud's day. Uh, you know, people who were people of color and Jews were, and women, like I said earlier, these were all groups of people that were kept out of normal society, right? They, they weren't allowed to participate in society in the same way that uh, some other people were, right? And this is just one, three quick examples that come to me right off the top of my head of the way in which Victorian Europe, the time and place where Freud developed psychoanalysis, the, the way that it was this very rigid, very oppressive thing. It was a, a society that encouraged people to be normal, right? There, were, there was this, this idea of this is normal. You have to be this. If you are not this, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're, you're less than people who are normal. That seemed to be the way that things were at this time. Now, in addition to that kind of rigid and oppressive sort of stuff that was going on, Freud also witnessed a bunch of really significant, very like noticeable historical events. And many of the events that he witnessed were extremely tragic events. Now, I'm not going to be able to spend this podcast telling you all of the different events that Freud would have witnessed during his life. We don't have time for that, and I'm sure you would be bored if I did that anyways. Uh, but what I will do is I will talk about just a few of some of the incredibly tragic things that Freud witnessed during his life. So one of the, the first things that I want to talk about is that Freud lived through, you know, a pretty significant part of what we would think of as the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, you know, is a time where um, factories and machines are on the rise and the idea of, you know, people doing things by hand, being artisans and craftspeople, that is very much waning, right? So you're seeing cities become these gigantic industrial hubs. People are leaving, you know, their villages and, and their farms and different sorts of like places of that sort. They're migrating to the cities. When they get to the cities, the cities are really dirty. They're, there's a lot of people kind of being stacked on each other. Uh, the work that people are getting are in these factories. These factories are very dangerous, not very safe. There's no sorts of like laws that prevent children from being used for labor. And so kids are being used in these factories in really inappropriate ways that are very dangerous for them. So Freud's seeing that kind of thing happen, right? And uh, in addition to all of the kind of gross environmental effects of the Industrial Revolution, there was also the effects that the Industrial Revolution had on people, right? We, we started to mass produce things. 
uh, goods kind of came down in price, but you also started to see uh, like a, a decrease in people kind of like learning a trade and building stuff and taking pride in their work. And they started to start to see the, the beginning of, um, you know, kind of big capitalism is what's going on here. And now some people may agree with this some people may disagree with this, but one of the effects uh, of this is that people became more and more alienated from their labor. They, the, the work they were doing became kind of uh, drudgery. It became somewhat depressing. It became very mechanistic and, and Freud saw all that stuff happening. Now, one of the other things that happens during this time is that the people start building these gigantic things. One of the gigantic things that gets built during the industrial revolution are these really big ships that would, you know, sail from Europe to the United States and back again. One of the ships that got made was the ship you might've heard of it. It was called the Titanic. Now the Titanic is a really interesting thing because when it was made, it was, it was, you know, the unsinkable ship. It was this, it was the pinnacle of technology. It was like the best kind of ship that people could build. It, and, and it, I, I would argue, and I, I don't know, I didn't live through this clearly, but, uh, people, the Titanic was, was more than just a boat. It was a symbol and it was a symbol of technological progress. It was like, look at this massive, gigantic, huge, cool thing that we can make. If we can make this, we can do anything. And that was kind of the idea of the Titanic. And of course, the Titanic, the first time it goes out into the ocean, it runs into a big piece of ice and it sinks and kills a lot of people. That might not seem like a big deal to us here now today. I mean, we've always, I mean, there's movies about the Titanic. It's become a piece of popular culture in many ways. But at the time, it really rocked people, right? Because this industrial revolution thing had happened, technological progress was occurring, and this was one of the first events that really showed people that maybe, even though we've made all of these gigantic technological advances and whatnot, maybe we're not as advanced as, advanced as we think we are. Maybe we're not as cool or as untouchable as we might want to be. That's another thing that happened. Uh, it kind of, it's also, incidentally, I think a pretty good example of what we could call hubris, right? Um, it, it was human beings creating this thing and being so confident in what they had made that they thought like, you know what, we're not going to be cautious. We're going to just sail this thing. Oh, there's a big iceberg in the way, whatever, just, you know, run into that thing. It'll be fine. And it, of course it didn't work out that way. It was a, a reminder to people that even though, uh, they, they had advanced in many ways technologically, well, the, the earth is still a pretty powerful thing and it can still, uh, surprise you in many different ways. So that that kind of unsettled people, I think. Uh, the next event I'll talk about is World War One. Now, World War One is not a war which I think is talked about as much here in the United States as it is in Europe because it didn't affect us here in the United States. We were, I mean, it was not fought in on the United States. America got involved in the war very late, uh, didn't lose a whole bunch of people. The effect of World War One on Europe, where Freud was living, was gigantic. I mean, a massive amount of people died in that war. It was probably the most tragic thing that anybody on that whole continent had ever witnessed. Uh, and kind of sticking with some of the things that I said before, it was one of the first wars that was fought with technology. There was, there was chemical warfare. So there was, you know, chemical gases being used. There was machine guns. There was planes. This is the first war where submarines were used. And, and so you start to see these uh, human technological progress is being used to create these terrible weapons that can just like, you know, kill and maim large numbers of people very quickly. Uh, that's another thing that Freud sees. After that, right after World War I is over, uh, it, it, very shortly after it, in 1918, there was this gigantic uh, pandemic. There was a flu uh, that went around and killed a lot of people. So Freud lived through a pandemic as well that, that people just couldn't control. After that, you had the rise of Nazis and of course, World War II. So all of this stuff is just some, some of the things that Freud lived through and living through all of this stuff, you know, it didn't fill Freud with what you might think of as a, a really positive outlook on people and on human society, right? In fact, it gave him what I believe would be recognized today as a rather negative attitude when it came to how people treat themselves and how they treat other people in particular other people who are different than them and how they treat the environment, you know, the, the world that we all have to share. Freud saw people doing pretty nasty things to themselves. He saw them doing pretty nasty things to other people. He saw them doing especially nasty things to people who are different than them, i.e. women, 
people of color, uh, uh, anybody who would be considered LGBTQ+, plus stuff like that, really, really, really did not have good lives and Freud was seeing that. And he saw us making all of these gigantic kind of like technologies that made the environments that we live in kind of gross and nasty and the technologies that we made we were using to kill each other you know, not, didn't fill him with a whole lot of confidence, basically. Uh, we could say that the time that Freud lived through, just the way that society was organized, the the rigid and oppressive way that it was organized, and then all of the, the events that I described, they led to him having a somewhat pessimistic view of humanity. Now, having said all of that, what I want to do now is I want to bounce back to one of the historical items that I mentioned. Uh, actually, two of the historical items that I mentioned, the rise of the Nazis and the beginning of World War II. Now, most people who were psychoanalysts at the time that psychoanalysis was a thing, when Freud was kind of creating it in Vienna, Austria, a lot of those people were the people who were excluded from a lot of other institutions and a lot of other kind of social power in Europe. So uh, let let me be specific here. Freud was a Jewish man. Because he was a Jewish man, even though he was a medical doctor, he didn't have the same kind of privileges that, that non-Jewish doctors have. He, did, he couldn't, for example, teach at a university. That wasn't allowed because he was Jewish. Um, so a lot of psychoanalysts, they were Jewish. Additionally, one of the things that Freud did is that he encouraged women to become psychoanalysts. He did not think, in, in the United States, and we'll talk more about this later, uh, this was not the case. In the United States, you needed to be a medical doctor to be a psychoanalyst for a very long time. And which is kind of funny because that's not the way that Freud did things. Freud, you know, he had daughters and one of his daughters, Anna Freud, became a psychoanalyst and he encouraged a lot of other women to become psychoanalysts as well. He did not want to keep women out of this thing that he had created. He wanted to welcome them into it. And he also, there's an interesting thing. You can Google this if you want to find it. At one point, I think this was in 1935, a woman had written to Freud and said that she had a son and that her son was gay and she was wondering if Freud would take on her son as a patient and cure him of his uh, homosexuality. Freud wrote back saying, there's nothing wrong with your kid. Being gay is not a mental illness. You know, he said, it's not going to, it's probably going to be hard for your kid to be gay in this society. There's no question about that. But being gay is not a deficiency. That was something that he said. If you want to find that, just like Google Freud letter homosexuality or something like that. And I'm, I'm positive that you'll find it. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that I want to make it really clear that the people who were interested in psychoanalysis, the people who were going through psychoanalysis and the people who were becoming psychoanalysts, who were becoming kind of clinicians, they were people who had, uh, they, they were sometimes those people who would be considered like the, the normal European people, but they weren't only that. They were also the people who had been kept out in a lot of different ways. This is important because these were the very groups of people that the Nazis, as they were coming to power, uh, kind of going into World War II, they did not care for these people. So as the Nazis are coming to power, um, they start to identify different groups of people who they think are problems. Uh, communists are one of the groups of people who they think are a problem. Gay people, they think gay people are a problem. None of that. Um, Jews, they obviously think Jews are a problem. Uh, and psychoanalysts were some of the people who they thought were a problem too. Freud, uh, was not somebody who the Nazis cared for. They did not like him. They burned his books quite a bit. Uh, Freud's books were some of the, I think the first books on the, the list of books to get rid of, to burn those books, get, get rid of that guy's books. That's what they were saying. So as this is happening, as the Nazis are coming to power, Freud, you know, he's, he's lived his, almost his whole life in Vienna. That's his home. And uh, he doesn't want to leave, but he, it becomes apparent to him that he should leave, and he, and he does. And a bunch of other people who are psychoanalysts, they were like, yeah, we should probably get out of here. We, this, this, what's happening here? This does not look good. We should leave. And they ended up in a couple of different places. The, the ones who didn't leave, by the way, they ended up getting killed in concentration camps. But the ones that did leave, they ended up either in Britain, England, and the ones that ended up there, we will talk about more in a future podcast where we talk about a theory called object relations because that's a theory that really kind of comes into being in the United Kingdom. And there were other analysts who left and made it here to the United States. And what I'm going to talk about today is 
the group that ended up here in the United States because that's the group that ends up creating this thing called ego psychology. So just let me do a quick review here of this section that we went through. I tried to explain the time and the place that Freud was living in. I tried to show you how it was kind of kind of dark, kind of glum, kind of pessimistic, right? And that that was one of the sort of, that was the stuff that was influencing the creation of psychoanalysis as Freud was creating it. Uh, then what happens is a bunch of psychoanalysts, as the Nazis come to power, they, they take off. Some end up in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and some end up here in the United States. In the United States is a place which is not like Europe. It is not like the place where Freud created psychoanalysis. It has a radically different kind of culture than European culture. And in the next section of this podcast lecture, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the American context and the way that that context influenced the creation of this theory called ego psychology. Okay, so unlike Europe, which was getting kind of old and curmudgeonly as we went into World War II, and uh, and certainly after World War II, Europe's global influence was fading. Here in the United States, the, the opposite was occurring. America's influence in the world was growing. If Europe was kind of this place that was entering into... It's uh, the winter of its life. It's twilight years. If it was if it was retiring from being the leader of the world, the United States was you know just kind of coming out of its adolescence, entering its young adulthood. It was young and active and getting more and more powerful and, and that sort of thing. That was what was going on here. And one of the things that characterized the American society, the American zeitgeist, the spirit of the United States from the 1920s till I'd say the early 1960s was a strong belief and strong emotional investment in a very positive attitude. I'd even go so far as to say that there, that, that has continued somewhat even into the, the present day. But it was really, really powerful from the 1920s to the 1960s. What made Americans Americans was they, they, were, they were positive. They had this positive attitude. They, they, you know, the glass was always half full to, to the Americans. And what I—that's important to point out because that's the society that all these psychoanalysts that were leaving, kind of Europe, which was this this place that was, as I described in the previous section, perhaps somewhat pessimistic. They came to to the United States and they discovered this kind of place that was like, "Hey, the sky's the limit. We can do anything we want. You know, all you have to do is work hard, and good things will happen to you." Blah blah blah. And it was a very very different place than what they were used to. And being in the United States had a pretty significant, at least I think it had a pretty significant impact on the way that they thought, the way that they theorized, and the way that they, they practiced psychoanalysis. Being that as it may, what I want to do now uh, is take a little bit of a critical look at this kind of positive attitude thing that was going on in the United States. And uh, I'm going to start off doing that by kind of trying to break down this attitude and some of what this attitude might suggest, because I think this is a really important thing to do for those of us who want to be mental health professionals and especially for people who want to be social workers, because social work, I think, is a, a part of the mental health kind of apparatus and the, the, that has people who are you know, kind of interested in things like social justice and economic justice and environmental justice, those, those sorts of things. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, the American attitude that was so present you know, from the 1920s into the, the early 1960s, I think it went something like this. Uh, it was predicated on a couple of beliefs. Belief number one is that if you work hard, you will absolutely get somewhere, right? Working hard is good. People who work hard are rewarded for their hard work. That was point number one. Point number two, if you are successful, if you're a successful person, if you have access to lots of resources, if you have lots of money, that sort of thing, that must mean that you've worked hard that you had been smart uh, or were smart, I guess, and that you had some kind of valuable skill that you had cultivated and were then able to sell to people who needed it. Point number three, if you were having a hard time becoming successful, 
that was probably because you were lazy. That's, that's probably the reason that you weren't making it. It was that you weren't working hard enough, that you didn't want it enough, that sort of thing. Uh, point number four, there, there was no value in feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, you know, the, the Americans didn't really care for that. That was very off-putting in the United States. Feeling sorry for yourself was, and I think probably still is, something which was generally seen as pretty unattractive. Um, you can actually even see this now that I think about it in some of the, the things that we say, like, uh, you know, if you say to somebody, are you feeling sorry for yourself? Chances are you're probably not saying that in a way which is like, are you feeling sorry for yourself? That's probably a good idea. You're probably saying it not like, are you feeling sorry for yourself? Like, are you actually doing that? That's such a negative thing. Why would you do that? That's, that's the way that people talk about that thing. Uh, point number five, uh, if you believed positive things, if you thought positive things, if you had a positive attitude, then it was very likely or certainly more likely that good things would happen to you. Point number six, uh, it was a person's individual responsibility to care for their body, for their finances, for their professional development, for their education, for their attitude, etc. Um, this is a really important thing to highlight the sixth point, that it is the individual's responsibility to care for themselves. Uh, because what that meant is that society was not supposed to care for you. That was not society's job. It's not go the government's job to care for you. It's not your employer's job to care for you. It's your job to care for you. You have to care for you. That was a big part of the American zeitgeist. Uh, and the last point, point number seven, if something is going wrong in your life, if things are bad, it is probably because you have made some kind of error it is because you have failed in some ways. Uh, now, I could sum all of this stuff up. The American positive attitude was pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's probably the, the most succinct way to describe it. That was a very, very, very American way of looking at the world. If things are bad, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If things are going good for you, that's because you've worked hard and you have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. If things are not going well, it's because you just haven't reached down and grabbed those bootstraps and pulled yourself up. Pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps, that's what made... America. Great. That was the positive attitude that kind of permeated the, the American society that the psychoanalysts came into when they started to create ego psychology. Now, I said I was going to take a bit of a critical attitude towards this, and this is where I'm going to get a little bit critical here. I think this positive attitude thing is kind of uh, inaccurate in a lot of ways. And one of the people who I think some kind of points out how inaccurate it could be is the the wonderful human being martin luther king martin luther king once said it's all right to tell a man to lift himself up by his own bootstraps but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps i'm going to paraphrase that a bit um before we like you know just value people being able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps we should realize that there are some people who have not been allowed to own boots. And that that's a really important thing. I want to point that out in this podcast lecture because when I talk about ego psychology, when I've taught about ego psychology in the past, I've found that a lot of people really like it right off the bat. In fact, when a, a younger version of me first encountered ego psychology, I really liked it. I thought, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And then as I, I lived more and thought about it more and learned a bunch of other stuff, it became apparent to me that ego psychology does have some things to offer. It, it's not a, it, it's a theory. It has some really good ideas in it, but it, it also overlooks some things. It just has a blind spot the way that all theories do. And I think one of the things that is in that blind spot is something which is generally in the blind spot of American culture generally. And that is, you know, Americans like, I think my argument here in in this podcast lecture is that Americans like to think, they like to believe that if you work hard, good things happen to you. Americans like to believe if they're successful, it's because they have worked hard. And I think they also like to believe that if somebody isn't successful, it's because they haven't worked hard enough and because, or that they're not willing to work hard enough. And I just think that that's nowadays anyways, I think that that's just not true. Sometimes that might be true, but it isn't as true as people tend to think that it is because there are people you know, who are parts of what we might call vulnerable populations. There are people who belong to demographics that have had the deck stacked against them, that, that have not been able to have the same access to opportunities that 
everybody else has had, right? We can see that in the United States, there are groups and individuals in those groups that have had a much harder time making it in the world. It has not been easy for them to do these sorts of things. And saying this, I think, is particularly important as we start to look into ego psychology because ego psychology is a theory that in many ways I think could be said to try to increase a individual person's capacity to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. It values helping people get better at fitting in to a society by getting better at controlling themselves, by being more productive, by um, doing the things that are largely seen as good. And while there is absolutely value in that, it is important to, to say that society has not, and, and even today does not, allow everybody the same opportunities to fit in. There are some people who that's easier for, and there are some people who that is definitely not easy for. And uh, that's kind of it. So, okay, I'm going to get off my, my soapbox here. I've talked a little bit about the European situation. I've described the American situation. Hopefully you can see how those things are different. And uh, what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of music. Then when we come back from that music, I'm going to be talking about some of the key aspects of ego psychology as a theory. I'm going to be talking about ego functioning and I'm going to be talking about defense mechanisms. And I will wrap up the podcast lecture by talking about ego as another way of thinking about this thing that we could call our identity. Stay tuned. So as the name ego psychology probably suggests, it puts the concept of the ego very much in the foreground and the rest of psychoanalytic theory and the other two agencies, the superego and the id, very much in the kind of blurry background. The aim of ego psychology is to work with the patient to increase the overall functioning of the patient's ego or to make the patient's ego stronger, more flexible, and just overall more powerful, to make the ego something that is uh, more powerful, certainly not less powerful. That is really what ego psychology is attempting to do. Now, those who are drawn to the theory of ego psychology tend to believe that the ego has a job to do and that that job is to balance everything in ways that allow for someone to keep a grip on themselves. You didn't see this, but I used the uh, fingers as air quotes when I said keep a grip. Uh, ego psychology tries to empower the ego to keep a grip on a person and what that person is doing, how they're behaving, how they're feeling, that sort of thing. Uh, to keep a good, strong grip on the steering wheel of the personality could be another way that we, we think about what ego psychology is attempting to do. Uh, to, to maybe suss this idea out just a little bit more. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see this, like in, uh, at least I think you do. I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but whatever, I'm going to roll with this. Uh, um, those old movies, right, where maybe a person starts to freak out, like an, an old Hollywood black and white movie where one character starts to like uh, really get upset about something and somebody might walk up to him and like, you know, grab him by the shoulders and shake him and say, get a grip, you know, or, or slap him across the say and say, get a hold of yourself, pull yourself together. Uh, those are other ways that you could think of what it is that ego psychologists are trying to do. They're, they're telling people by and large to get a grip. And by get a grip, what they mean is, you know, make your ego more capable of having a grip on the way that you're behaving, the way that you're expressing yourself in the world. That's what ego psychologists are attempting to do. Um, so, when the ego has a grip, when it is in control, when it's doing its job in a good enough way, people tend to behave themselves. They tend to operate in a largely logical and consistent fashion. They do things that are more socially acceptable, things that people would look at and go, oh, look what that person's doing. That's like, that's a great idea. Uh, in short, when the ego is strong and flexible, people with those strong and flexible egos they are able to stay in control 
of their emotions and the way that those emotions get displayed to people in the world. Now, it's very important that you understand something here. And then I, I said, I, this, is, this is actually like vital that you understand this. Ego psychologists do not try to control what a person feels. They do not try to control our emotions. That is not necessarily what they're going for. What they are trying to control is the way that those emotions might be sort of like displayed for, for people in the world. They believe that the stronger person's ego, what, what ends up happening is uh, that that strong ego is able to kind of prevent very strong emotions from being acted out. Uh, a lot of you probably heard the term acting out, right? It's when, when we talk about like a student in a school acting out, that's usually not a good thing, right? When a student is acting out, what is it they're acting out? They're acting out an emotion. If uh, you have a child and your child is acting out, what is your child acting out? They're acting out an emotion. It might be an emotion, and it's usually a bad emotion, an emotion like jealousy, uh, an emotion like irritation, frustration, resentment, those sorts of things. Those are the emotions that get acted out. Ego psychologists... Um, I don't think that their their aim is to necessarily get rid of those emotions completely and totally because that would make us not human probably. Um, but what they do want to do is they do want to get people into get a person's ego into better shape because the idea is if the ego's person is in if the person's ego is in better shape, then even when those emotions come up, the person who experiences those emotions will be able to kind of modulate them and not act them out in ways that will kind of get them in trouble. That's the way that it works. At least that's the way that I think that it works. I think that's the way that ego psychology tries to work with people and, and help people out. This is important to, to realize because this all ties into this thing called ego functioning, which is a huge part of ego psychology. When an ego is functioning, when it's doing its job, uh, that means that people are generally behaving themselves. They're doing things like working, they're going to school, they're studying, they're getting good grades, they're being productive members of society. They're, they're doing the things that are, you're, you're supposed to do in order to get you know, pats on the back from the society that we live in. Now, to tie this back to a previous section of this podcast lecture, American culture is very, very influenced by an economic system of thought called capitalism. And capitalism tends to tell people that the best thing that you can do is you can be a really good producer and a really good consumer. So what that means to be a good producer, what do you need to do? You need to keep yourself healthy mentally and physically so that you can go to work. And when you go to work, you produce something, whether that's an actual like object or a service that the society needs that can be sold. And uh, when you're not at work, what do you do? You go home. You go out with your friends, your family, and you buy stuff. You go and you, you go out to eat and you buy food. You go out and you buy a car to get yourself from place to place. You buy tickets to a concert, that sort of thing, right? Th these are the sorts of things that when you're doing this in a capitalist society, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And ego psychology, I would argue anyways, tries to, it, it matches up with that a lot, right? It tries to make people good capitalist subjects, i.e. it tries to make them into people who will be really good at getting their bodies to their jobs or to their schools, uh, doing the things that they're supposed to do at those jobs in those schools, and then going out and doing the sorts of things that you do when you are a member of the American public, right? You go out and you, you spend your money and you, you, you do stuff. That's the idea there. Now for emotional wrecks, if we're unhealthy people, physically, emotionally, and whatnot, we're not going to be as good at doing those sorts of things. And that's the kind of thing that ego psychology is attempting to you know, alleviate. It's trying to make it easier for people to be productive and make it more um, challenging, I suppose, for them to like be sitting around feeling sorry for themselves and be sort of like emotional wrecks, just you know, uh, not doing anything, right? That's the idea there. A functioning ego is one that increases productivity and consumption. An unhealthy ego is one that allows emotions to kind of gain the upper hand and uh, have us act them out in ways that don't play well in the society that we live in. So hopefully that makes sense as I say it. And uh, maybe you buy that, maybe you don't. You know, whether you do or don't, I hope that you'll talk about it when we 
half class together. Let's move on from this to the next concept, the concept of defenses. So to do all of the things that I just described to you, to kind of empower an ego to help a person function as a productive member of society, the ego has to do a number of things. One of the things that it has to do is it has to keep unsettling, destabilizing, or anxiety-producing experiences as far away from our consciousness as it can. Uh, now, again, it doesn't mean that it gets rid of those things. It means keep them far away. That's, that's a really important distinction. I can't say that enough. When I say that it wants to take these experiences and keep them far away from you, another way I could say that is that it wants to limit as much as it possibly can your exposure to things that freak you out. Uh, it, it does not, the ego tries to minimize the sorts of experiences that freak us out, the sorts of experiences that make us feel destabilized or anxious or um, really depressed even, right? Like those sorts of things, the ego's like, nope, none of that. Let's not have that experience, please. Uh, and this, this comes out in a lot of different ways. Uh, and it's stuff we usually don't even need to think about. So I'll give you one real quick example here. I am not somebody who likes roller coasters. I know there's a lot of people who really do like roller coasters. If you're one of those people, cool. I hope you go on roller coasters and that you really have a good time when you do it. I am not one of those people though. And there's been many times where people have said to me, hey, would you like to go someplace and ride roller coasters? And my answer is always like, nope, that's okay. I'm going to sit that one out. You go have fun. Uh, because I, I don't have fun with them, right? So that's just an example uh, that I think kind of would show sort of what the ego does. Roller coasters would freak me out. And so I just say no to those things. The ego is this thing that when something comes up that could freak us out, it's like, nope, no thanks, and just tries to make sure that that experience doesn't happen. Um, but it, the ego, the, the way this works isn't, isn't as simplistic as me saying no to a roller coaster. It's important to remember that when I say experiences, I'm not only talking about things like riding roller coasters. We experience all sorts of things. Some of the things that we experience are memories, we experience our thoughts. We experience our emotions. If something happens to me and I, uh, if somebody, I see somebody who I haven't seen in a long time and all of a sudden a bunch of memories come back as I see that person, I'm experiencing those memories. If somebody um, asks me a question and I start thinking about it, I'm experiencing my thinking. If um, I watch a movie which is really sad i start to experience sadness maybe as i as i watch it or if it's very exciting i start to experience excitement when i as i, as I watch this movie so experiences are not just things like experiencing the food we eat experiencing the roller coaster that we ride or in my case don't ride it's also experiencing things like memories thoughts and emotions and it's those things that the ego the the experience of of memories thoughts and emotions those are the things that the ego I think really does try to prevent us from experiencing in particular, if there's a, a memory, a thought or an emotion that we would, that would create a lot of stress that would be painful for us to experience that would destabilize us. Uh, that would make it more difficult for us to be productive. Uh, what the ego does is it represses those things. And the way that it represses them is could also be said. It, it could also be said that it's defending us from them by repressing them. And this is where the idea of defense mechanisms come in. Now, defense mechanisms, I'm assuming, are things that you've heard of. You've probably even used the term defense mechanisms at some point in your life. Uh, you've talked about somebody else using a defense mechanism. Maybe you've talked about yourself using a defense mechanism. And this is where things are going to start to get a little bit tricky. So pay, please pay attention to this part of the podcast lecture. Uh, defense mechanisms are things that your ego does, but you don't know that your ego is doing them. What I mean by that is that defenses are always an unconscious process. If you say, I'm doing something as a defense mechanism, it's actually not a defense mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. When you are aware that you're doing something to prevent yourself from having a negative experience, a destabilizing experience, you're coping with it. What the ego does is it, without, it, it does this stuff without us knowing it's doing it. It represses these negative, um, these anxiety producing, these stressful, these, these painful, these unpleasant sorts of experiences and makes it so that we don't just don't experience them. We don't know that they're there. This, I, I talked about repression in the, the first unit of, of this class. This is maybe me sussing out that idea a little bit here. Now, the way that the ego 
represses things is not always the same. This is one of the things that the ego psychologist pointed out, and it's actually a really interesting idea here. Ego psychologists were super interested in the way that different people went about defending themselves from negative memories, negative thoughts, negative emotions. And what they realized is that not everybody does it in the same way. Some people use very simplistic, very primitive defense mechanisms. An example of a very primitive defense mechanism is denial or just forgetting something, right? So if you did something that was really nasty to another person, uh, your ego might just deny that you've done that. And when your ego is doing that, denying that you've done it, you kind of believe the denial. Uh, it's like, no, I didn't do that. So if somebody comes to you and says like, you lied to me, you, you might respond. And, and let's just say for the sake of the example that you did lie to them. What, and, and that that makes you feel upset. Uh, your ego might not want you to experience being upset. And so it responds by saying defensively by saying, I didn't lie. I told you the truth, right? It, and, and when somebody says that, they believe that they didn't lie, that they did tell the person the truth. That's an example of a very uh, simplistic, very primitive version of repression. Uh, more sophisticated forms of defense and, and the repression which results from the defense are things like sublimation or the use of humor. I'll describe what that is. So um, imagine that you have a boss and your boss kind of is not an easy person to get along with. And your boss maybe asks you to do stuff, stay late, even though you've done it a lot and you really don't want to because you have other stuff that you've planned to do. Um, you know, you're, you're in this situation rather and you're having an emotional reaction, which is you just want to like tell your boss that you think that they suck or something like that. Uh, what your ego would do is kind of repress that, that emotion of, of irritation, of anger and the desire to tell your boss that they suck. And it would come out in a sublimated way where you would maybe say something to your boss like, oh man, you know, like I've, I've, I've stayed late like four out of the past five nights, right? Or something like that where you're, you're not just saying no, you're, but you're definitely hinting at that you don't want to do it. You don't come right out and say the thing that you want to say, but you, you kind of say it. That's the way that sublimation works. Sarcasm is another example of this. When somebody says something sarcastically, that can be a way that they're expressing something that they want to express, but they don't feel completely comfortable expressing. Humor works this way too. Uh, people use humor as a way of talking about things that if they talked about them in a non-humorous way, it would be probably really weird or it would definitely be destabilizing. People joke about things like racism they joke about things like death. They joke about uh, like really awful stuff. And part of the idea of ego psychologists is that when we take something which is an unsettling thing like racism or death, uh, but we talk about it like a stand-up comedian talks about it in, in a stand-up comedian way, that that actually allows for people to, in a sense, experience something, but not experience the emotions that go along with that thing. The, the emotions that go with it get kind of defended against in different ways. So I'm hoping that this makes sense. Now, again, this, this podcast lecture is not going to be the end all be all of ego psychology. I'm using this, you know, kind of in addition to the stuff that you're reading for the class to try to suss out and uh, some of the bits of ego psychology to add to the things that you're reading so that when you, you come into class and we talk about this, you'll have more things on your mind that you can use to, to think about the theory and whatnot. So anyways, this brings me to the very last section of the podcast lecture. And that is the idea that the, the ego, in addition to being something which is kind of a defender, it defends us against the kind of like really anxiety, destabilizing emotions and memories and thoughts that we're having. And in addition to being something that we could describe as kind of like the, the air traffic controller that is functioning well and making sure that everything is working right, we could also think of ego as identity. Now, identity could be described a lot of different ways. The way that I'm going to describe identity is that it is something that is the way it's a consistent way of being in the world. If you have an, we all have identities. Everybody who is listening to this right now, you, me, all the people we know, we all have an identity and our identity is a way that we habitually act in the world. And, and that's, that's kind of how it gets formed. Uh, so if you have all of the people who are listening to this are people I'm assuming who are in school to be some kind of mental health professional, being a mental health professional might be a part of your identity. 
might be an important part of your identity. Being a mental health professional means that you consistently behave in a way that you think mental health professionals should behave. Now, in order to be consistent, in order to have a consistent identity, one of the things that the ego does is it tries to turn down the emotions that would lead to us being inconsistent, right? If there's an emotion, if there's a memory, if there's a thought that would lead to us doing something that would be not what we consistently do, not what we habitually do, that would not fit with the way that we want to present ourselves to other people, that's the kind of stuff that the ego tries to defend us against. That's the kind of stuff that the ego attempts to repress because it, it has sort of as one of its primary missions, the continuation of consistency, the continuation of stability. If somebody has a strong, flexible ego, then they will be consistent. That's kind of the, the idea here. And again, hopefully you see how all this fits in to what, what, how, how this is very much an American idea, right? That, that Americans are people who just like, you know, kind of get to work, right? We, we, we don't have time for, you know, crazy emotions here. We don't do that. We, we, we get the job done and, you know, we're, we're plain spoken and so on and so forth. So it's very different than the, the pessimistic Europeans who definitely were experiencing lots of very powerful, aggressive emotions and, and whatnot. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different. Hopefully you understand the difference here. I already talked about it, so it probably wouldn't be a good idea to talk about it again. And I think that that's actually enough for this podcast lecture. So I'm going to stop talking here and I will see you all in class later on this week. Uh, until then, please, whatever you're doing, I hope you're having a good time and uh, make some glorious mistakes. Take care.